and welcome to the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. We trust you'll benefit from our unique lineup of CEOs, generals, and leaders from all business sectors. Whether you're an aspiring, inspiring leader or a seasoned leader seeking further motivation, this podcast provides you with practical life tips, sound wisdom, and world-class leadership advice. I'm your host, Jonathan Bowman-Perks. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this week's Inspiring Leadership Podcast. I am genuinely very honoured to have a really special connection for me, and a man who is a naval pilot, who is a commander of uh, the USS Nimitz, uh, an aircraft carrier, a very famous and uh, awesome aircraft carrier. He is the author of Learn How to Lead to Win. He was 36 years in the Royal, in the uh, American Navy. I almost slipped into the Royal Navy there, didn't I, Mike? <laughs> and uh, a Top Gun pilot, trained in the famous Top Gun uh, base, which we all know so well in the film. And now, for five and a half years, he's been a vice president at Boeing. And so able to translate all that amazing leadership experience in the U.S. Navy into business. And that's why I want him on the show. And also, we just found when we started to chat, we had so much in common and the connection with my father was very special. Welcome, Mike. Thanks, John. It's so great to be here with you. And you're right, we have that connection, not only in the material world with your father training in the same places as me uh, and being an aviator, but also in the view of leadership and um, team building. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed, uh, those of you listening, um, uh, certainly go on to uh, Mike's website, he'll mention it at the end, but you know, definitely... Uh, I, I, I review, as you all know, probably about 50 or 60 books this year. Um, this is a definite book that you've got to listen to. I listen to the books, but Mike has one of those voices, which is a real pleasure to listen to. The stories are amazing, 33 stories, but he's got a load more stories. But they're great stories that they have, you know, really powerful. I find my, it's the humility, the humanity and humor, the three hums, I call it, that I like uh, that, that, that you show. But definitely have a listen to that and then sign up for the newsletter. Uh, because that comes out each week, and I find that a good way to end my week uh, uh, reading Mike's newsletter. Mike, uh, let's begin with, um, you know, I'm always interested in the inspiring leaders who come on as guests, who they find as inspiring leaders. And if you were to pick two that you found as inspiring leaders that you'd like to be your guests on the show in future, who would the people be that you'd call out and why would you choose them? Well, I have I have two that occur to me and they're close to me. Um, the first is Admiral Bill Moran. Uh, Admiral Moran, United States Navy, retired, uh, was the 39th Vice Chief of Naval Operations uh, just a couple of years ago, was confirmed to be the Chief of Naval Operations, and ultimately through various things that didn't happen. The man is so inspiring and able to remain um kind of above the fray in any situation. Um, I've seen him take extremely thorny issues uh, in front of either a, a, a you know, a, a group of a, a thousand enlisted uh, people in the, in the Navy or, or in front of a, a hearing in, so in front of the United States Senate or, or, uh, or the house and, and distill those issues into understandable points and then able to articulate the way forward he was recommending. Um, he is the consummate meeting um, host. He will he will seek all the points of view 
he listens a lot better than me uh, and is able to take into points of view and then and, and then very uh, succinctly says, what I think I heard was this. He's an unbelievable leader, unbelievable leader. Um, he now spends his time uh, volunteering uh, for various boards and 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 those sorts of things. But I call him, uh, you know, my greatest friend and my life coach because because he he helps me, you know, uh, get over the things that uh, that that trip me up. Uh, he's first. Um, the second is uh, Major General Steve Neary, United States Marine Corps. Um, Steve was an infantryman. Uh, he also retired a couple of years ago. Um, he led troops in battle as a colonel in uh, Ramadi and Fallujah. And your listeners and watchers will understand the, the intensity of the combat um, that, that was held there. And he, he was on the ground there. And he is an extremely, first of all, you can tell he's a Marine. You, you don't even have to, you can tell no matter what, when you get exposed to him, that's a United States Marine right there. Um, he has got a sense of moral, he's got a moral compass that is the strongest I've ever seen in any individual. Um, and he's, he's like the warrior philosopher uh, of the ancient Greek days that, you know, and Spartans and all that kind of stuff. The man is a Spartan and he's so motivating uh, at, at how he approaches things. And so he's also a great friend. When he retired from the United States Marine Corps, he moved in about a half a mile from me. Uh, and I got a chance to meet him through a, um, through a, a, a mutual friend, a mutual neighbor. And, and we've become very, very close. Um, he is also on this sort of journey uh, with respect to, um, you know, leadership examination and, and, you know, helping others uh, lead um, and he brings the experience of leading young Marines into combat, um, high stress, high risk environment, and the ability to build high performing teams that are willing to take that risk. So those two guys, mm. both in the United States forces, um, stick out to me more than more than any other, you know, inspiring person that I would, you know, that I would look at or watch that I do not know. I don't know Admiral McRaven, but he is very inspiring. I do not know other you know, military members that have become authors. Um, uh, I do know Admiral Jim Stravridis very, very, very well. We served together on a carrier a while back and we've remained close. And I, I watch with with great interest his intellect as he brings his intellect into all these issues in too. So, but 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 Admiral Moran and General uh Neary are the two that that really motivate me and um and and cause me to say, hey, th those guys, I would follow those guys. No, that's great. Well, I look forward to um, them, them coming on uh, the Inspiring Leadership podcast, because I think there's something quite special when you find someone that an inspiring leader recommends others that, that they find inspiring. And also this lovely combination between military experience and then being on boards and, and, and seeing how you can translate the leadership lessons of operations or combat into um, business and, and what applies. And also... I think the very best military leaders learn to let go of stuff and that, that they are not who they were then. They adapt quite quickly because mm. you've had to constantly adapt. I mean, you think about you did a number of desk jobs. You went back to the, the same, you know, that air warfare side of the Pentagon and places like that where they wanted you back there. But it was very different from being on the aircraft carrier to them being in a desk job 
flying a desk is very different from flying multiple planes as you sort of got the uh, as you were the air wing commander you got the chance to play with all your all your toys um but uh fa fascinating I, I really took so much from your book and i take so much from a number of people some some are dry but some some are interesting if i can make a comment john to, to that sort of combination i believe that um it is the mark of a good leader to be able to mold themselves into a current situation someplace and the more the more a leader can be an effective leader in different environments really speaks to the capability of that human being um there are many people who work really well in like a tactical situation there are really good bureaucrats and they're you know or or you know when you look at them you go hey that that person was was effective over here, but it's not effective over there. I think about this all the time. And so, of course, my happy place is on, you know, in a, in a fighter cockpit on an aircraft carrier. But being able to be successful in the Pentagon at increasing seniorities, and I found that that when I did have those four tours in programming and air warfare, you know, the more senior I got, the more comfortable I was with maneuvering in that in that bureaucracy. And a lot of people said, no, no, I don't want to go to the Pentagon. I'm, I'll be out here doing this. Thank you very much. I had a 30 year career, you know, flying. I never went to the Pentagon. I'm proud of that. Well, I, I, I tend to disagree with that point of view. And, you know, in our in in the UK armed forces, there, there are headquarters that it's the same thing. People don't want to go to headquarters. They don't want to go to the desk job. But in order to be effective as a leader through life, you need to have those different experiences. And it's always a trick with yourself and, and you ought to be introspective. How do I function in an environment like that? And you learn how to function in that. Maneuvering through the bureaucracy in the Pentagon and making it work. Well, my last job there was, was recommending to the chief of naval operations what we should buy. I mean, everything. Not just air warfare, but but all naval warfare, and you know bombs, bullets, people, aircraft carriers, airplanes, ships, submarines, and being able to work through that as a leader and an influencer, and being able to understand that it's a long game, and that you're only one cog in this particular wheel. We're out on the carrier. When I was a striker commander, I was <laughs> I was the cog. I made everything else turn, and everything went the way you know I said. And some leaders. They want once they get senior enough, they want to be that big cog and they're not happy unless they're that big cog. Mm. And so I always think and I, I think about this all the time is how do I fit? And maybe it's that that it's that humility. How do you demonstrate humility? You talked about the hums. You Sure, you go, hey, I'm going to be humble today. Well, that's not going to work. You know, how do you how do you embody that? And, you know, later on, I, I hope we get into like how how to be a, a person of influence or a leader because it's not with your title it's how do you think about this uh as a person when you're trying to influence other people to go in a certain direction and and where are you effective okay i fly a pretty good fighter off of a carrier i drive a pretty good aircraft carrier i'm a pretty good striker commander i've been trained to do that by the u.s navy that fits now I go to the Pentagon. Oh, I don't want to be here. I'm not, you know, I'm just biding my time. Well, that's not effective. You got to, you got to learn. I think the best leaders fit in any situation and they look around and, and it happens in my civilian life. Now, you know, I, I look around and I go, okay, I, I think I need to act like this and then be open to critique and debrief that, Hey, you're not acting like that. You're not effective. You could be more effective this way. 
But I think our most effective leaders are able to transition from sort of a, a bit, let's just be very simple, from being a rear admiral in the U.S. Navy to being an executive in in business, to being the chairman of a nonprofit board, to being a member of a nonprofit board, to to being able to convince the community group that this is a great investment for the community association, for our neighborhood, you know, and and I, I find that, you know, when I talked about uh, Admiral Bill Moran, he does that anywhere. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's really cool. So I, yeah. I, I just thought I'd segue. No, I, I like it very much that that flexibility and ability to adapt to whatever is thrown your way. I mean, yeah. you, you think about it, you know, there you were doing with your um, uh, people going through the ceremony as you were crossing the line and, and a storm hit. And you had to adapt and do something very different. And a lot of people go, well, uh, you know, I've got this plan. I've got to stick with it. But the situation's changed. Yeah, yeah, but I'm going to carry on regardless. No, 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 no. You have to adapt. So there is that. And then it's if we take it on to health with metabolic flexibility, the most healthy people have a very flexible metabolism, which can adapt the mitochondria and all the gut microbiome. And what the research is now showing is that we're not all the same your gut microbiome and mine are massively different. So a diet that works for you wouldn't work for me. So one size fitting all isn't the way to fit people in. So there's almost like a combination of the two that on the one hand, we need to be flexible that we can adapt ourselves to a whole lot of different roles. And at the second time is like finding out what are you really good at? In your case, you were a super pilot. You went to Top Gun um and you know you you got to to drive the big boat with the uss nimitz those who are listening there's a lovely end of it, it looks like an end of a, a wine oak barrel or a whiskey barrel with the uss nimitz on it tell us the story about that mike in in your room uh, with all the oh books. that yeah yeah uh, yeah it, it was uh actually it was it was built somebody who's good at woodworking uh it's a it's a serving tray if i took it off that it went like oh this. yeah it's a serving tray it, Lovely. And somebody who was good at woodworking gave that to Kelly and me uh, as as a gift. Yeah. Oh, it's very nice, very special. Now, but you know, that- I want to. I want to. Uh, you said something else very, very provocative. One size fits all. As a leader, looking at your team, one size not going to fit all. No. And when you when you go to employ your you know your your brand of leadership on the team, you have to be willing to be inclusive for everybody. You have to understand where that input comes from. And so, as a leader, when you're, I love how you said that. It's it's you got to recognize what what kind of talent you have on the team and being able to maximize that talent. And and you're messing with the formula all the time. Um, and you know we all have found ourselves with just exactly the right formula, and it's oh, it's great. And in 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 a couple of my tours, you know we, we had settled in with with the direct reports, and it oh my gosh, it was epically happy and everybody worked the same and they finish each other's sentences. And then as you move through that, a couple of people change out and you have to rebuild it again. And, uh, and that's always, you know, a challenge for, for leaders. And so that's one size fits all thing is very provocative when not only as a leader job to job, but also the way you approach your teams. Yeah. And it led me on to another thought, which is as I work with CEOs and teams, they're trying to get to know their team well, particularly if they've come in, they've been parachuted in, maybe the previous CEO wasn't very successful, they're replacing them, but it wasn't a team they inherited. Uh, sorry, it was a team they inherited, wasn't a team they chose. And very much like the same you, you, you land on an aircraft carrier, here you are, this is your team, meet the team. 
Whereas some people love the idea of they, they clear out the team and they bring in their team. This is my team. I can work with these. These people can adapt to my style. I'll bring them all with me. But that shows a lack of flexibility because they all have to be little mini me's or, or make allowance for your shortcomings because, you know, sorry, you know, I know what he said, but Mike's normally like that. He's a bit rude, but don't worry. What he meant was he really loves you and keep doing a great job. You know, people sweeping up after I had a general I worked for and, you know, he just savaged people and sort of yeah. fed fed bits of their limbs underneath the door after he'd just eaten them out. And, and, and that, you know, people had to sort of pick up the pieces afterwards. Not particularly nice to be that way. So what I have found interesting working with these leaders, two or three psychometrics, which allow all the team to understand their strengths, what they love doing, what motivates and drive, how they think, their decision making, and the kind of roles in design, develop, operate and enhance a business that they're most suited to. And it doesn't mean they have to do those roles. It's just that they'll be really fulfilled and happy doing it. it doesn't mean they behave that way. It's just they like doing it. And that is often quite a revelation to people. They go, yeah, this is me. And the, and the boss goes, I never knew you liked that. I, I thought you liked this. I, I put you in this role, but actually you're really suited. Why don't I, would you like to do this role? And you go, I'd love to do that role. It'd be just a dream job. And, and so they often think we hired them in for that role. They fit that box, squeeze them in, they're that kind of shape. But actually, have we ever checked how to grow and develop them? And I find it very sad in, in some of the big banks, famous world banks, where people had to leave the bank on promotion into a rival bank to get up the next level because they always saw them in that box at that shape yeah. and they weren't ever going to grow. So they left, joined the rival, got promoted and then came back on a promotion up and it can't be right. Um, so I don't that, know what thoughts that you is, have. Uh, that, that concept right there is very familiar to me in my current situation. And I, I yell at that all the time. And then, you know, and, and just recently, somebody said, look, we brought this guy back. I said, why'd you let him go in the first place? He was, you know, very, very quality person. But I want to you know, want to talk about something that you're bringing to, to just this point. So I did parachute in um, to be the CEO in Nimitz. And I have also, uh, for a little while in my, uh, I jumped jobs in my current company and parachuted in. And my approach was the same. And I would recommend this for any leader. Uh, and I learned it, by the way, on the way to uh, going to Nimitz. Uh, and I was CEO of Sacramento, same thing, uh, Sacramento Supply Ship. That was my deep draft. I could practice with that one before I got the carrier. Again, parachuting in. Uh, I There's something in my personality that that causes me to question, you know, whether I should be there. And, and I won't go in deeper on that. It's just, you know, sort of an imposter syndrome thing. But what it helps me to do is go, hey, I'm the new guy here, even though I'm the boss. It prevents me from coming in and going, okay, this is the way it's going to be. We're doing this, 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 this. Um, and, and uh, you know, you you guys need to change. You, you people that are subordinate to me by rank. I always approach it as I'm the new guy. Let me learn you. I'll fit with your rhythms because in any organization, the leadership changes. So when I first took uh, command of VF-31, my my fighter squadron, which was my first real command, the way that I looked at it actually, and I, I used to say this all the time, this big cement wheel is turning over and that's the squadron or the ship or the strike group or the company. And so you just imagine this big 
cement wheel turning over. And at any time on the top of that wheel, the commander is running, keeping up with the wheel. And then pretty soon they go off and another commander comes along. You're just one of. So the humility comes as a leader when you realize you're just one of. To build a high-performing team, you're not all of that. You're just one of the team. You happen to have the title, but you've got to lead the team as a human. And realizing that you're just there for a little while as a caretaker, and you're fitting with this team that is an evolving organism the whole time, I think keeps that humility going. A lesson for, for your listeners Go back and look at how Admiral Nimitz in just after Pearl Harbor, when he is sent out to take command of the, of the, uh, the, the Pacific Fleet staff, what he does with the staff. He comes aboard and says, you guys are great. And, and not this way, but you guys are great. I trust you. Let's go to work. He doesn't fire everybody. And of course, they are so downtrodden because with Admiral Husband Kimmel's leadership, they get attacked. And so they're feeling like they you know they had completely failed. And what Nimitz realizes in order to establish, you know, the where he wanted to go, he needed to, to motivate those people to work because he they knew stuff he didn't know. Now, he ultimately brought in people and, and kind of said, OK, I'll bring in here. He might have had one trusted advisor come with him, but he didn't wipe the slate clean because if you think about that for a second, if you wipe the slate clean in any organization you come into, you've just wiped out all the organizational knowledge that you had, all the corporate knowledge that you had. You don't want to do that because you have no idea of that organization if you just parachute in. So you've got to learn kind of what's going on and you trust the people that do that. The other thing I found in, in, a, in a recent job change I had in my current company, um, I got parachuted in. And we were hurting a little bit. And so I immediately got on a little bit of a public affairs kick. And I got on videos and I got on video uh, like this, a WebEx kind of a thing. And I just started extolling the virtues of the team that were pretty downtrodden. And, and I would call out people and what they were doing to win. And I would motivate them. And this is the best team we've got. We're going to go win these things. We're going to na 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 na. And the morale came up instantly. When I joined Nimitz, I was all fired up and I was an approachable captain. The morale came up. You can generate excitement in the organization as you as you parachute in. I don't like leaders that come in and chew everybody apart and go, I'm all about that, and then throw the limbs under the door. You need to be a motivating person. That's the way you get the best out of your team. And, and that's what I, many things I enjoyed in your book was the uh, that you were the sort of captain motivator uh, when you came over the ship tunnel. And on the one day when you were a little bit down, and and it came across in your voice and someone stopped you down below decks and said, are you OK? And you're like, yep. my God, you just you realize the shadow of the leader that you cast is a long one. And um, it is without being too rah-rah uh, Tony Robbins sort of let's walk on fire. You're all fabulous. It, it's depending on who you're with. I mean, Brits are notoriously more um sarcastic and you know underscore and 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 there's of course the the americans tend to be more positive and sort of upbeat uh and then you've got uh the the the, the walking on fire but there is this uh, legendary story which was true at the uh, battle of the imjin river in the korean war where british understatement was a problem and the american general was in charge and the british brigadier had his sector where about a million Chinese came across the border in the space overnight, you know, carrying little poles and uh, with machine guns and mortars and all sorts of stuff. No vehicles, just all running across in, in little flip flops. 
and 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 into a space held by about you know a thousand a thousand British troops, including the Gloucestershire Regiment, who had to fight at the front and the back, which is why they used to have a cat badge on the front and the back of their berry. Anyway, he was rung by the no, he rang the, the the general, the American general in charge of the division that he was part of, and he said, uh, "So yeah, things are things are a bit uh, sticky here." And the general, okay, right, okay. And he just thought, you know, it's a bit bit busy. What he didn't mean to say was, it's like, I'm getting overrun. I need <laughs> reinforcements there. So the guy didn't realize that he needed reinforcements. So they were getting seriously overrun. So yeah, we can completely do it the, uh, the wrong way. Um, you know, and the other, the other thing, uh, uh, that's a wonderful story. And I love British understatement. I think it's great. And sometimes we are, as Americans, pretty bombastic. But you know, when we talk about morale and a high-performing team, when you get down with your team, you're not just all sunshine and rainbows. I mean, you can you can tell, you, you know, when you're truthful with them, you can tell the truth, and and they will they will buy it. They go, hey, this is going to be hard charging when we go through here. It's going to be hard slogging, and and this is why we're doing it. And they're all in. So when you build that that sort of a, a you know uh, a rapport with the people you lead, whether it's your direct reports or, or, you know, it's 5,000 people on a warship, um, you know, they will go with you no matter what, the, what the idea is. They'll also see through you if you're always just, you know, happy and giddy all the time and go, oh, that's all great. You know, and they're like, well, you know, here we go. So yeah. there's a balance there. But if you, if you get down with your team, um, bad news, good news, neutral news, and now you know each other. So when, when somebody who's an understater says, ah, it's a little sticky, you go, okay, tell me, because I think something's going on here. Uh, and somebody who's an overstater, you can kind of take it with a grain of salt, you know, when stuff comes in and, oh my God, the sky's falling. And okay, tell me how the sky's falling. And let me, let me moderate that, you know, uh, both ways. Yeah, so, so right. And I think back to your earlier comment, when anybody listening goes in as a leader to take command of uh, any job they get, um, it really is important to create that psychological safety. And I remember a couple of very senior generals that I, I worked for, um, and and one particularly, both of them actually loved fear. They loved creating fear. I, I remember um, I was an ADC to uh, to one general, and and just he would just tear people apart, just rip them apart. And he'd always, within a month of taking over the job, he'd fire two senior officers, and and just you know, he'd find a reason to fire them. As they, as Napoleon would say, pour encourager les autres to encourage everybody else to work hard. But it, it didn't. I don't think that's a healthy way of doing things. And you clearly don't. We've talked about this before. Um, then, then there's the other hilarious one where what one barking mad, very brutal, aggressive general, uh, his ADC would sit in the front, and uh, we, we had a collection of ADCs. We call it the AIDS Convention, which which was quite relevant for us. That that our job was to try and communicate with each other so there wasn't any great dramas behind the scenes so nothing nothing went wrong um and also to make apologies when one had torn out another general on a visit but it, it was interesting that his um his adc was made to sit in the front with the driver and what are you looking at me for don't look at me turn around look at the front and so so he did and um he'd been in the job about six months and they were near a barracks about to inspect it and um this general said i need a piss um, uh, pull over into the bushes here and I'm going to step out and have a piss. So anyway, he, he did, very brutal uh, and blunt and rude to the user point. 
Anyway, door closed and he said to the driver, okay, drive on. And um, they drove on and they they got to the gates of the, the barracks. They said, General, we're here. And there was no reply. And he, he thought, I, I won't look back, but General, we're here. He's asleep. Driver, can you see? He goes, I can't see him. He might have fallen to one side. And he goes, I'm going to have a look. Gonna, I'll have a look. No, 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 I'll have a look. My God, where's the general? Oh no, <laughs> what had happened? It's a windy day and the door had blown closed and he was in the bushes <laughs> his pee and they driven onto the barracks <laughs> and they left him behind in his full dress uniform with his medals and the whole lot in the bushes on his own. And the ADC Perfect. said to the driver, drive me to the railway station. I'm going to fire myself. <laughs> <laughs> He never saw the general again. He just he just didn't report for duty. He fired himself because <laughs> he had a habit of firing everybody. And uh, yeah, I, I luckily survived, but I, I survived in an environment of fear because my two predecessors had both been fired. Well, you know, I, I gotta I, I'll I'll give you a digestible or a soundbite for for your listeners. Anyone who creates a culture of fear in an organization is going to fail. They're going to fail because. They didn't create a psychologically a safe environment for people to bring up bad news. Mm. They're going to fail because people will try to hide instead of tell you the information you need to know. Even that when 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 the boss creates a culture of fear, even if it's just sort of you don't even know how they're going to take the news. Anything that causes the direct reports to talk amongst themselves about not bringing something up, that is vastly dangerous to the uh to the performance of the team the performance of the organization you've got to understand that your your abilities as a leader to create an environment where people will tell you the worst possible news and not fear that you're going to rip their head off or fire them in you know in the spot um you, you know you've got to create that environment the the people that that and you had that that wonderful french phrase which i i can't repeat but uh, i can't say it but uh but, you know, that you will motivate somebody else by firing somebody. No, because you're going to create fear and you're going to create. Uh, I, I always saw when you didn't create that safe environment and when you, when you were leading with your title and, the, and by the title, I mean, you didn't connect as a human being. People won't try. They won't try to fail. They won't risk. They won't do anything for you. So, so even though they might be working just fine. And as a leader, you'll go, well, everything's fine here you're not getting the best out of your high performing team because the potential is not being realized. If you lead with fear, you're not going to realize the potential. And that is a hundred percent applicable anywhere. Yeah, you are so right. And there were two business uh, stories, which are, are true. Uh, one of my um, clients I coached was a partner in PricewaterhouseCoopers and he was involved in um, looking after Lehman brothers after it had um, collapsed and they kept it going for 10 years. Actually, it made a huge amount of money after it had gone into its zombie status because all the <laughs> funds kept going. And actually, they paid off most of their debtors. But that's a whole story in itself. However, what was interesting was the culture still carried on of how it was in the days before they crashed. And the culture was good news culture. Failure is not an option, which was fine when everything was going well. Yeah. But when things started to go badly, people had to have good news. So they actually began to change graphs and charts and reports and only tell the good news because that's all the boss wanted to hear. And that was partly behind many of its faults, partly behind why it went to the wall because it was good news, which works well when it's going well, but when it's not, no one wants to know. 
And the other story is when I went into IBM, I was told the legend of John Watson, who was one of the early IBM CEOs. And he took over from another leader who had the um, the same kind of culture as Lehman Brothers. Failure is not an option. Um, you know, Dick fooled with that sort of gorilla, you know, make it happen, just get in there, make the money. And um, one of his senior vice presidents came to him and he said, uh, I know you've only been in the office two days, uh, John, but um, I've got a problem. Can I talk to you about it? And he said, yeah. He said, tell me about the problem. He explained the problem. And he said, right, that's quite a big problem. He said, how much does it cost us? And he said, you know, $260,000, $260,000. He said, I suppose you're going to fire me. Because, of course, you know, good news was the culture there and he'd given him bad news. And John went, fire you? Why would I fire you? I've just invested $260,000 in your development. I want you to go away with your team, work out your learning and your action and what you're going to do. Come and brief me tomorrow about it. He did. He took his advice. Uh, he went through it. He coached him, the coach approach. Uh, he went away and did it. They actually made $1.5 million by rectifying the problem. And he became the CEO in due course. Now, if he'd made the same mistake again and again, and he was constantly bringing problems, fool on John for trusting him. But this guy, a bit like you were saying, he believed in him and gave him a chance. And the guy and his team just rose to it. I don't know whether that resonates with your experience. Oh, vastly. Um, and, you know, not pie in the sky here. That kind of approach by a leader is gonna is gonna amplify the potential of the two hundred sixty thousand dollar a pound person until it doesn't, you know, and and then you then you know what to do, right? And so you the leader gives guidance to that person. Hey, I'm investing in you. Um, thank you very much. I think you learn here. Okay, thanks. I, I get to stay. But if it does happen again and you're doing your best leadership, well, then it's time for that person to leave. But you've done your due diligence at that point to get the most out of the people that work for you. If you go 260, oh my gosh, you're gone. See ya. And you're trying something else. You're starting from scratch again. And you haven't regained your 260,000, you know? So yeah. it's a great story that the, you know, the, the man who lost 260,000 made, you know, five times that um, and was able to, you know, participate. And then there's also other stories that, you know, the other person continued to lose money until the leader decided, you know what, I do have to make a change here, but at least you tried yeah. as a leader. And, 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 and when you do make that change, I think the other thing that we sometimes, you know, are afraid of is, is that, that direct plain spoken, trusting conversation between the two that says, Hey, you know, and the, and the man, you know, or the person says, yeah, boss, I know, Yep. You gave me all the chances. I tried this. I tried that. It didn't work out. Um, I, you know, I'm good. Thanks for your support. You know, so you've created that environment where you can have both kinds of conversations and you can marvel at the results. And then when you have something happen like that, and this is the other thing too, is you're building your team and you find somebody that, um, you know, the it's, it's always only good news. You find a way to celebrate, to talk about, to, you know, to say, Hey, this, this action right here, not, not only did John, you know, uh, amplify their earnings here. We learned we learned good lessons, and so I do want to hear about the red. It's not green, green, green all the time. I want to hear about the red. The behavior you're trying to emphasize and to um, um, you know to reward is that is that behavior that says, "Hey, boss, uh, I got some bad news here." And then what you value is okay. And what are you going to do about it? So I, I do this little thing in the in the teams that I lead called "What So What Now What." What's the problem? 
So why is it important? And now what are you going to do? Um, so the, the so what means that they have to be able to tell you. Now, you might know already. It's not just 260,000 pounds, but it's maybe the, the bedrock of something that is the core of your business. Okay, that's that's important. And then most importantly for the development of your leaders is now what are you going to do? The ineffective uh, subordinate comes to you and they go, I don't know what to do, boss. You tell me. So you're trying to cultivate that culture with your direct reports and then all the way down through your leadership tree where somebody comes in and goes, hey, boss, I got to tell you something, usually bad or middling news. This is what happened. This is why it's important. And now here's what I'm going to do. Do you need any help? Nope. No, I'll come back and report to you tomorrow. I found that to be most effective uh, in one, the delegation and the empowerment of the subordinate that 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 motivates them to do that. And then two, um, your ability, uh, you know, to have subordinates who who will think on their own and and come to you with solutions you might not have thought of. Because the the one thing that we haven't talked about here and through this entire thing is you're not the one with all of the answers. Never. Um, and so you want the collective intelligence of your team. And if you trust them and you motivate them with a safe environment, they're going to come to you with their best ideas. Now, we might fail, but we fail together and we learn and we talk about the learning and we still continue uh, as a team. Yeah. And it's lovely. I'm going um, next week, as you and I know, to France to cycle 500 kilometers, raising money for Help for Heroes and my wife's charity, the Inspiring Leadership Foundation for Violence Against Women and Girls. And uh, I'm going with a an ex-tornado pilot from the first Gulf War. And he was very interesting. And I wonder whether this resonates at all. But he said, in my early days uh, as a pilot, I just had myself to look after. And I thought I was God's gift and that everybody was there to serve me and get my airplane ready to get me in the sky and fly. He said it was only later on that you start to get that leadership experience. Whereas as a, you know, perhaps with your uh, Steve Neary and with myself as an infantry platoon commander at the Scots Guards, it was suddenly from the very beginning, I had 30 people uh, and, and a sergeant and, and corporals and like that. And, and I had to learn the hard thing. How do I motivate these guys and how do I deal with them and uh, how do I get all moving together? But you were very good in your in your book, um, really, in, in the, the lead to win, learning how to lead to win. In the particularly on an aircraft carrier or the, the supply ships or other things you did or squad command, this idea of of picking up the rest and taking them with you. And I, I like that. I came across really well. And, and not many, I think, easily make that transition from it's all about me, look at me, I'm enormous, to it's all about how the team supports getting that one uh, uh, object, that that aircraft into the enemy position. But just telling, telling us a little about the aircraft. What was the fun ones of all, you know, your time at Top Gun things, what were the fun aircraft you enjoyed the most flying? Because that, that always puts a smile on your face. Oh, yeah. I, you started to say aircraft. And of course, my, you know, <laughs> involuntarily, I start to grin. Yeah. Uh, before I tell you about flying Tomcats, which is the ultimate best ever, let me tell you about the epiphany I had to the point you just made. And that epiphany occurred in 1996. And I was the executive officer of my fighter squadron. And to your exact point, to the tornado pilot's point, um, yeah, I'm pretty big-headed fighter pilot, you know, and and pretty confident in what I'm doing and, and flying that fighter. But I, you know, I would take another person with me in the back of the Tomcat, and we, you know, we collectively would go around in an airplane. And then as I became more senior, 
when I became the skipper of the squad and I would, I would qualify people, send them over the horizon and they'd go do their thing. The epiphany I had was uh, my very good friend uh, at the time, Captain Bill French, who retired as a vice admiral, was taking command of the USS Oklahoma City, which, is, which was an American submarine. And because he and I had met each other at a leadership course, he invited me to his change of command. Sitting in the audience of the change of command, I had this blast of, you know what? When I go over the horizon in my airplane, if me and the Rio, and that's it. When he submerges that ship, him and 300 crew members go with him. He's taking 300 other people with him into risk. Um, of course, the stories in World War II of the destroyers that sacrificed everything against the Japanese in the Pacific. And, you know, the captain that made a decision, we're going to go against this Japanese battleship. And they got obliterated and the entire crew died. And you, this decision that, that everybody's in this together, that, that experience at the submarine change of command is what changed my view of we're taking mm -hmm. everybody and it's that important to do so. Uh, but the but the fun part, yeah, flying flying Tomcats off an aircraft carrier is is the best ever. Flying fighters, I get to fly Super Hornets later on, uh, both single seat, which was interesting, and then uh, and then two seat airplanes as well. So I got a chance to fly what we would call or what I've compared to the the Tom Tomcat is like a 1967 you know Chevy Corvette, you know goes straight really well, doesn't turn very well, is loud, it's sexy, it's really cool looking, everybody turns their head. And then the Super Hornet's like a brand spanking new 911 Porsche, digital fly-by-wire, does things that the, there's no way that that Tomcat's going to do. You can do things with the controls that you'd never do in a hydraulic airplane like a Tomcat. But, you know, just operating around a carrier in a high-performance airplane was was always just so motivating, and and I just loved it. That fit my personality, and so I, I just, you know, I really enjoyed that. Yeah, I could see you just, just light up like a Christmas <laughs> yeah. tree. And and in that um, legendary film, both films uh, around Top Gun, um, it, it, the, the, there were there were great moments and sad moments. We could talk about the great moments. If you were to pick out one of the moments in that film that sort of captured for you the best bits of your job, what what would it have been from the film or the films, either film? Yeah. So so the first the first film was filmed around uh, us. In the Top Gun course, I was in Top Gun in early 85 when they were filming at Miramar. They didn't film the class. They stayed away from us, uh, but they filmed on the base. And so just having it recognized, you know, that, yeah, we this, that's what we do. Um, the rest of it, all ho Hollywood. And, you know, there are no there's no trophy for best pilot, even though, as we all know, when you walk into the bar, everybody knows. Right. So so uh, there wasn't that. But it was really cool to see the Hollywood production of what we have fun doing. Yeah. Um, so I thought that was pretty neat. The The second movie uh, with the Super Hornets, I, I would quite plainly at the very end when the Tomcat comes in, I was hooting and hollering out loud in the, in the, the theater. And I will tell you that the premiere, when we saw the second Top Gun movie, it was a special event in an IMAX theater uh, in the Naval Aviation Museum at Pensacola with wow. all of the active and retired uh, U.S. Naval Aviation flag officers. And so we were teasing each other mercilessly 
as you might imagine, ready room atmosphere about this movie. And, and there's a huge rivalry between <laughs> Super Hornet guys and Tomcat guys. And so we were yelling and stuff. So when that Tomcat came out at the end, that, that was my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's lovely that you mentioned Pensacola and those who can uh, watch the video of this, they can see my dad's uh, cap, naval cap and his naval sword and a picture of him getting into a U.S. aircraft. I don't know whether we worked out which one it was, uh, uh, Mike, but um, I think we have. He, he was climbing on board a U.S. aircraft with a sort of parachute underneath him to sit sit on it in those days. But he trained in Pensacola and also Corpus Christi, where he met my mom. And so it's, it's, it's been a lovely connection with you. But one of the things we were talking about uh, beforehand was my mother remembering at the base, um, I think it was Lossy Mouse in Scotland, where they were training. Um, that they saw a plume of smoke rising up from the airfield where someone had, had a crash and they knew that somebody had been killed and they sort of waited then for the naval officer to come in full dress uniform. Was he going to be on knock on her door? Or was he going to be on neighbor? And it was a neighbor's door on that occasion. Another time it was obviously on the, the door of our caravan where we were living when, when my father was killed. But that that knowing that all the time you were living a very dangerous life, you and I talked about balance and, and looking after your family because naval uh, service, you know, you, you were eight years at sea when you added it all up, that separation. Few have that in their jobs. Mm. And many marriages don't survive and kids don't know their parents and that kind of stuff. Or parents are killed, um, mm. uh, as happened in my case. A any thoughts that you have about that, that whole experience and what kind of leader you had to be to manage in that environment? Well, I, you know, I detail a lot of this uh, in the book, John, from from several different aspects. One thing is that's not I don't think I wrote this in the book, but my first this recognition that I might not come home, my first deployment, um, you know, an administrative detail. I, I gave Kelly the checkbook and, you know, basically running the life while I was gone. Some people didn't do that. They wrote, they, they paid the bills from out on the ship and they, and they, you know, the salary, they gave their wife an allowance of money. They kept all the stuff here. And so I thought that um, if I didn't come home for some reason, you know, Kelly's ability to transition into taking care of the family would be more difficult. And then through, through our career, as I came home from deployment, I didn't come home and go, okay, I'm back. Let me have it. It was just fit back in. And I think that's a, a successful part is you just kind of fit back in. And this realization that, you know, it's a risky environment. You know, I have a different view of it than, than Kelly does because because I am familiar with the environment. Um, and I used to tease her a lot. I said she would worry that I'm going to, you know, crash at sea. And I said, no, 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 I'm going to walk down a street. A brick's going to fall off a building, hit me in the head. That's how I'm going to die. It's going to be something stupid. It's not. It's not going to be doing this, but the uncertainty and the unknown of those who stand at home is, is the piece that you got to you got to think about quite a bit. And and it, is it you know is there going to be a knock on the door? Um, and you know recognizing that that kind of hanging out there all the time that risk, you got to acknowledge that that perception that that there is something going to happen. Now, in the operational world in my career. You know, my first set of deployments, we would we would lose an airplane or, you know, air crew or both a couple. I mean, on almost every deployment and, you know, the cost of doing business and it was accepted. It was like, you know, just things happen out there. And then it wasn't until about the mid 90s when we weren't amazed that we brought everybody home. Mm -hmm. And it 
And it, you know, as I became more senior, it dawned on me, we want to work hard to bring everybody home. It's not the cost of doing business that, you know, that we should allow this thing to happen. And, you know, back in the day when you're talking about your, your father was flying and, and um, your mom was, was seeing the plumes of smoke. I mean, the number of mishaps, you know, in, in all of aviation was astronomical. I mean, they used to allow people, you could just walk onto the flight line and go fly any airplane you wanted to. You were a qualified aviator. I think I'll fly that helicopter today. Didn't get it right. Crash, you know, or I'm going to go fly that jet. Never flown that jet before. I'm going to go fly that big, that big Bearcat and they torque roll and die because they don't understand the, you know, the effects of, of carbon on the power, things like that. And until we started to put processes in place to say, you know what, we're, we're not going to operate that way. You know, you you had those plumes, uh, you know, of smoke and and wonder who's going to knock on the door. You know, I think in the early days of aviation, I I think we were exploring and experimenting and 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 advancing so fast. And and I think that you know, in the in the lives of of those that were lost in those things, we we did. You know, it's amazing how far we've come since the Wright brothers, yeah. and it's it's actually staggering, um, how fast uh you know we have built built aviation but uh, we don't have those days anymore where the plume of smoke goes up or there's the chances of of perishing at sea are such a high thing that the family has to actually get into a graveyard mindset and just just assume it's going to happen um but i i think i think bringing that system into home here is is being able to describe the environment we're in and allay that fear yeah yeah and it is interesting the quality of the people who became pilots and knew that that it was a, a very fast and furious life and their lives were constantly at risk. You know, my father did make plans. He said, look, there, there, there may be one day when I don't come home. It just was quicker than the thought. He, he lived his whole life. It's just his whole life was 33 years and that was mm. all. And and of course, when I was a young man and I, and I was told my father had died, um, I, 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 was, I, was, I didn't learn about it until I was old enough. I was only two and a half. I always thought he was quite old when he died. But now I'm 61. I look back. What a young man. I mean, like my my stepson is about his age and my daughters are marrying men who are the age of my father. They haven't even got children yet. And with we had three children by then. There was a book that's uh, on my my uh, mantelpiece, the, the Right Stuff, yeah, uh, yeah. which yep. is an amazing book that my mm -hmm. brother Graham uh, passed on to me about naval pilots, American naval pilots, training to go into outer space and just pushing it and then to become astronauts. But that was really interesting about the quality and the character of the people who were going to make good leaders in whatever it was. And I, I do think that idea of people who have the right stuff to cope with whatever life throws at them, uh, does that resonate for you? Yeah, it does. In fact, when you talk, I'm going, I'm going to tell you coincidentally, when you talk about a plume of smoke behind a house, I envisioned the description in the right stuff and then the movie, the right stuff, when they actually showed the, you know, the boom. And then there's a there's a pile of black smoke and then they show people in their dress uniforms at a funeral. Right. So that is that I, I think Tom Wolf described that environment so well. Um, but I, I do I do sense the same thing that that you 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 have a and in and, and the experience I had that theoretically you could say I was risking my life or my life was in danger at the time. It was very matter of fact. And, and my, um, 
my internal thoughts at the time were never, oh my gosh, I'm about to die. You know, when I jumped out of the airplane in 87, it was just sort of this matter of fact, this is when I die, but there was no fear. There was no, you know, there was no unwillingness to go do it. And I'm not a particularly, you know, courageously brave individual. I just, it was part of, you know, doing business. It's the situation I was in. I'm not sure exactly why that is. It's a matter of fact, acceptance of, of the environment I was in, a matter of fact, acceptance of the risk, and then thinking about how to operate in, in that risk. But but again, I think as we talked about with the families, you you can't uh you you can't just minimize that with, with a family because the uncertainty at home is, is going to cause that little veneer of of stress that you know mama or or the partner fa- papa is is always like well when you go the chances of you coming back are are small i i when i when when i was commanding nimitz the number of parents that personally and individually came up to me as the captain whether it was in person at a homecoming or on a phone recording or an email commentary to me thank you for bringing my my son or daughter home my father you know, home was staggering. There was an assumption they were going to die when they went on deployment. There was an assumption they weren't coming home. And that's a poor assumption, but you can't let that uncertainty or that unknown fester because it creates that stress. Yeah, it's very true. And what amazing jobs as people read your book or listen to it, you've had some fabulous jobs and what came across. And I did love the humility of this. You know, sometimes people look at leaders like you and they go, there's no way I can be like him. He's just had this meteoric career and, you know, guy's perfect. But actually, you brought out your humanity and, you know, your hope for promotion didn't get it at that time or that job. And you, But actually, how things worked out in the end. But if you look back at your career, um, if you picked out one dark moment in your life, what did you learn from it? Yeah, it's a good one. And and I'm I'm glad you you talked about, you know, when you when when anybody looks at my biography and they start listing the accomplishments I had, you know, they go, Well, can't do that. Look at that. And and oh, are you kidding? The path to get there was was all work. And it just those were just all the results. So when we see somebody who's achieved, you need to think about well, what did it take to get there? And you evaluate the person by, <laughs> you know, thinking about what it took to get there. So it's interesting, and I'll and I'll I'll tell your audience if you familiar with the book, you think well, the dark moment was you know ejecting out of an airplane in 1987 and having to recover from that. Uh, I can tell you that that I was professionally trying to recover from that because I had done the ultimate failure, which was to eject out of a you know wasn't flying very well, but a perfectly good airplane. That wasn't it. My dark moment uh, and the thing that took me a while to recover from was when I didn't select for for the aircraft carrier until the very, very last time. And, you know, up until that point in 2005, my career had been pretty good. And even though there were some failures along the way, I, I, I could still see that I was, you know, headed towards the direction I wanted to go. And then I didn't select. And and if you if you replay the story in the book, your readers will understand. The readers of the book understand. I did not want to go nuclear power, um, one because it was really hard, and two because if I um, uh, went to, uh, you know, the chance the chance there's only two and three. There's a one in three chance I would not got selected for a carrier, and so we reached that point at which I think I'm done, 
And now all that stuff I worried about 10 years prior was coming true. Well, it wasn't 10 at that point. It was 2005, six. So I had started nuclear power in 1999. So, so half of a decade. And boy, was I angry. I was so angry. I was so angry, viscerally and emotionally, just, I mean, really, <laughs> really angry. And I was yelling at the Navy. I was yelling at, you know, everything. And and so for a year, I spent, you know, alternately yelling at myself and then yelling at, at life and yelling at the Navy and saying that was bad. Now, what I learned through that, and I teach people, I did pay this forward. I talk about this in the book. What I learned about it is I then started to realize what might be the case in my life if I didn't select for a carrier on what turned out to be the very last look. So I wasn't the last look. There was one more look. And as usual in my life with a hand of providence and fate, it turned out perfectly and I got USS Nimitz. But at the time, I couldn't see that. But what I started talking to Kelly about is, well, okay, we know what it looks like when I get an aircraft carrier. That path is clear. But what's it look like when I don't? And I became very comfortable with what I call the fork in the road. So both forks, this fork over here with the carrier, that one I can see from now until the end. It's a, a carrier selection to Admiral, like, you know, maybe one, two, three, four stars. And there you go. Now this one over here, I hadn't, didn't want to think about. So, so the lesson that I teach in the book is to people who are at a fork in the road and are not knowing which way it's going to go and which way, which way life is going to take them, be familiar with both forks. Learn about the fork that you don't want to happen. That, you know, this one over here, that's what I want to do. This one over here. And so I got comfortable with, okay, not going to select. Good. We'll go do some fun job in the Navy. We'll get out. We'll figure it out. And, and I, and that was after the emotion of getting angry. And then, of course, as we led up towards the, you know, the, the next selection and I did succeed, um, you know, I was hoping I would get the carrier. I still, it wasn't like, okay, I don't care anymore. Yeah, I did care. But what I would teach my officers um, and people wouldn't select for something important to them, whether it was a rank or, or a command selection, I would bring them in the office and go, let me tell you a story about Nimitz. Let me, and I would tell them how emotionally invested I was in that selection for a carrier. And now here's what I learned. And then it came out great. And so, you know, one of the themes in that book is failure and then and then recovery from failure, the resilience from the failure. And in all of the points at which I thought I was done in the book, and there are several, but the most, the darkest one was when I wasn't going to be an aircraft carrier CEO, I thought, because the Navy had had gone another direction. Um, that really became, uh, you know, a, a, an epiphany for me that in that darkest moment, I started to get comfortable with the way that it could turn out. And then in the aftermath, when I selected Nimitz, I, it was really a clarion call to go, that's why you didn't select last year because you weren't so supposed to select last year. Because God says, you're not going to select last year. You're going to select this year. So you get Nimitz and the rest of that thing that worked out. And so I tell people, it's going to turn out better than you thought, even when the darkest moment happens. And so think more broadly and, and, and continue to ask your question If failure hurts, hurts badly. Your recovery is going to be in question, but if you put a wrapper around, but, but you know what, it's going to turn out all right. And I'm going to still be the same person I am. I'm going to continue to strive and it's going to turn out all right. And whatever happens, it's going to be okay. You know, so you got to kind of convince yourself of that. And, 
you know, the, 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 the first, the first theme is, is this failure. The second theme is, uh, is, is a recovery from that failure. And then the initial theme is I had a North star. I kept going towards the thing that I wanted to do. Initially it's flight training. And then it was, then it was flying fighters. And then it was, Hey, this, you know, command of a squadron would be pretty cool. And then, Hey, this nuclear power thing. And even though I didn't want to go in, I hope that works. And, and it, it, it turned out. So I always had a North star I was going after that's down there. And so I, I encourage people to always have a North star they're going after. But when you get to that fork in the road, be comfortable with each, each way it could go. And if you run into a problem, you get up and recover and failure is only when you quit. Failure is when you stop trying. Failure is not when you get, you know, temporarily stop, get up again and keep going. Yeah. That's, so it resonates with me. And even in my, my short 20 years in the military, uh, <clears throat> after staff college, um, I wanted to get promotion to Lieutenant Colonel command my battalion. And uh, I didn't get it on the first time or the second time, or the third time. And I thought, but I came out the top 10%. What happened? It's only years later when, well, not years later, a couple of years later when I left, um, I made the choice to leave and do my MBA and go into business. Uh, so that door closed. I mean, I could have kept trying, but I, I decided, I, you know, smell the roses. You know, you, you're not you're not in that first team. Um, that I wouldn't be doing this kind of work now had I that, that, that not happened. Um, and and so that became the new path. And I, I quickly realized I had to. But it's funny, even now, I still keep having a dream that that I should be actually going for that promotion. And and but for some reason, I'm now in a civilian job. But can I go back into the army and join again and get that promotion? I, that's a dream. I don't know. But it is interesting that that sense of not achieving something that you put your mind to and it hasn't worked out as you thought it would. What turns out someone about five years previously had made some comment a senior rank some man i'd never met but when i had the the, the um uh, access to all your information uh, laws that came in i i got to see someone someone written something on me and he questioned my judgment well that's death in the military if they mm -hmm. ever question your judgment and and perhaps i wasn't that good at that time when i was an instructor at santos at the military academy whatever it was but that put a nail in the coffin and so it was always promotion in his turn, which was not the same as promote immediately, promote early. And so you have to accept that sometimes things don't work out as you thought, but there's another plan for you. Mm -hmm. And you just got to make sure that you make the most of that new plan. You know, as, as John Lennon said, life's what happens when you're making other plans. Yeah, and I right. was I was making other plans. Now, we're just um, towards the end, Mike, and I just want to hear from you about your, your um, ability to turn around a toxic team. When you had a team that wasn't quite right, if you were to give a bit of advice to people, what would it be for a, a toxic individual or a toxic team? Um, I think that recognition, uh, sorry about that. I think that recognition that the toxicity of the team, well, we got to find the, the, the cause of the toxicity. There might have been a, a toxic leader that was there before the environment is, quote unquote, toxic. And so as you as you take over a team like that, it goes back to what you and I were talking about a little while ago about parachuting in. And you I have found that that when you value when you value people and their point of view, when you come in and ask questions, um, you're, you're going to succeed with in in um, dis, dissipating the toxic environment. 
when you have a toxic individual, if you work hard as the leader to under, understand the underlying causes of the toxicity in that individual, that you can either take away the sources of uncertainty and fear that are causing the toxic behavior and responses, the, the, the person might feel threatened or there might something feel going on. Um, then you take away that that sense of fear and, and the fact that you care about them turns around the relationship with that person. Or you figure out that the person actually just is a toxic individual is not going to change. And and then you 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 know you very clearly, objectively, and with great care, you remove them from the team. If the toxic uh uh, environment of a team is caused by a toxic individual and you don't take measures um, as modeling as a leader, the type of behavior that you expect, everybody hears it and they're all, every one of them is thinking about, yeah, but old Jim over here, he's not acting like that. And if you allow Jim to stay and not address the things there, then very rapidly, the hope the team has generated because you showed up is going to dissipate and the team will remain toxic or remain the environment will remain toxic. And so you must take care of the toxic individual individuals in the team. Um, you can't come in and just say, Oh, I know what's going on here. You know, I'm all of that as a leader. We're just going to act this, 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 and this, you will have a little bit of a honeymoon period when you show up as a new leader, but it will, it, it will go away very quickly and you won't achieve the performance. I, I see that uh, in a lot of organizations. And we'll just we'll just bring in this really awesome leader, this person who is all of that. And if that person actually is not a person of influence and is is not addressing the underlying resources, you will not fix that team. Uh, last point: you will never ever ever go wrong if you demonstrate trust and. Um, valuing people for their their presence their work their perspective um you know and their contributions never every human being on the face of the earth wants to be valued i've seen it everywhere in any organization when you come in as a ceo or an admiral or a boss or a president you come in with that position and you wear it with humility and you take the time to reach out to somebody, you get a double effect. The first one is, as a human being, you took the time to reach out. Second effect is, that's the boss. He didn't have to take time to reach out to me. You're going to get a magnification effect when, when you do that. And, and so that, that's really how I found the ability to address any team, whether it's, it's actually toxic or whether it's not quite performing well or whether it's a high-performing team. You know, if somebody drops in a high-performing team, you, you know, go, oh, well, look at this, you know, this is easy. I can only screw this up. Mm. But in a low performing team or a toxic team, you know, now you have the opportunity to go up. And the way you do that is you, you go in and you just love everybody. You connect with them from your heart instead of your title. And, and that's how you get performance out of them. No, that's great. Thank you, Mike. Um, penultimate question, um, your favorite book and why? And then we'll do your top 10. My, my favorite book uh, is actually The Speed of Trust by yeah. Stephen Mar Covey. And I have a whole reading list that I, I tell people about, and I continue to read, you know, more and more and trying to, you know, expand the way that I view leadership and being a person of value. But but The Speed of Trust 
was handed to me when Covey came aboard Nimitz to, to look at our organization. It was that program that did that. And the, and the man who was the facilitator, a, a big weightlifting, fired up guy named Hoke Rose, shoved this book in my hand and said, Captain, here's this book. And I, I said, well, of course, you're going to hand me the book, you know, whatever. I opened that book and I said, that's it right there. That's that's how I want to lead. I felt that I was leading with trust and I, and I tend to I tend to trust more. I don't make people prove to me they, they can be trusted. I I trust and I work on the limits of trust. That's how I lead. I thought that that speed of trust was how I led. So it's the one that made the most impact. But how to win friends and influence people by Carnegie, you know, speed of trust, uh, anything that deals with how to be a better person um, is is usually of resonance with me. No, I love that one. And uh, in it is that lovely equation, trust equals speed times cost. So when when trust is low, things take so long. They take so long and everything costs a lot, including the lawyers that you need to be involved because they sue and they want, you've got to have a severance pay and all sorts of things. But when trust is high, quick chat, yep, done, leave that with me, done. And and it happens very quickly and there's no cost to it Yeah, because you've just, just have it going. So yeah. um, finally, Mike, would you introduce yourself, what you did before, what you're doing now, um, and tell us your top two-minute top leadership tip? Well, that's, this is great. Thanks. Uh, my name is Mike Manazer. I'm a retired U.S. Navy uh, Rear Admiral, a two-star. I spent 36 years in the United States Navy. I was uh, brought up as a naval aviator. I flew F-14s for a long time, 16 years of my career. Uh, and then uh, following selection to the Na U.S. Navy nuclear power program, I went in a nuclear power program, ultimately commanding the USS Nimitz uh, aircraft carrier. And my last operational job was I was a striker commander for the, the Dwight D. Eisenhower strike group. I have five tours in the Pentagon and I retired in 2017 and moved over to uh, one of the Fortune 100 uh, defense companies. Um I've had a wonderful time leading in the Navy. My book, Learn How to Lead to Win, traces my journey through the Navy. 33 powerful stories that that taught me something about leadership. Uh, and then I found that in transition to a large uh, uh, aerospace and defense corporation, the lessons translate pretty, pretty clearly. Um, you know, my two-minute top tip is uh, learn to lead without your title. Lead from your heart. Lead through connection. And, you know, if you get squishy about it, it's talking about leading with love. You want to love your, the people that work for you, but your attitude is you work for them. And when you lead from a position of influence from your heart, from valuing people and getting to know them, you, you don't lead with just the title that, that, that results in you leading with authority rather than leading from that human connection. And I found that you get the best results when you can connect with your your coworkers or the people you lead on a, on a human level. The nirvana is you get to the point where you don't want to disappoint them and they don't want to disappoint you. They will fail for you. They will try and they know you have your back. We talk about psychologically safe environments. And, and I think the most effective leaders create that psychologically safe environment for speaking up when there's bad news for attempting to fail, knowing that the boss is going to back them up for failing. And, and you set those boundaries, um, you know, and, and learning from the failure. So always saying, what did we learn from that failure uh, and, and moving forward? So so that would be, you know, my top tip is the ability to lead as a person um, and and to 
to think of yourself as one of the team rather than the boss. Yeah. Well, Mike, thank you very much. It's been an absolute honor, a real pleasure, a special connection for me uh, with a naval aviator. And thank you for all the wisdom you've shared and for the great book that you've written. Thanks, John. It was a pleasure to be on with you today. Thank you for listening. We hope we've ignited your curiosity and broadened your perspectives. My guests and I provide this service to you for free. All we ask in return is that you share it now with one other leader you know, so they also benefit too. Please subscribe, rate, and review us on your podcast platform. We value your feedback and invite you to connect with us through my website, jonathanperks.com, where you can sign up for your weekly podcast newsletter. You can also follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. I'm your host, Jonathan Bowman Perks, and thank you for joining us on the Inspiring Leadership Podcast. You can hear another unique guest next Tuesday. Goodbye. Goodbye.